church, although you're going to miss the Hulk and Loki at the end of the sermon. Just kidding. Not really, I didn't want them to feel bad. Um, so we're looking, I'm not going to read, I've, I've been in the habit of reading, we're looking at the Ten Commandments, of reading all the commandments, but we just sung them, so I'm going to uh, just read through uh, the second commandment, and so I say to you, hear the word of God. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on, in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray. Father, I just pray this morning that you would come by your spirit and you would use your law to to awaken us to our need for the gospel, that you would use your law to, to actually strengthen us in the gospel. I pray that you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. Well, you know, probably, I don't know, about a month ago, I read uh, the latest uh, biography on the Wright brothers. Have you seen that by David McCullough? It's a great autobiography. And it just got me interested in like flying. Because if you think about it, the first airplane, we went from having the first flight to having the Red Baron in, in about 10 years' time. And that just made me think, wow, you know, that's pretty big. And then you follow that up to like World War II. And I came across a story, it wasn't in that biography, in another story, about the cargo cults of World War II. Have you heard of these? This is true. So in the South Pacific, both the Japanese and the U.S. would take these little tiny islands and these atolls, and they would put basically air bases on them so they could reload and bring supplies. And there were natives that lived on these little atolls and islands, and they had never seen airplanes, ever. And so imagine your surprise when you're a native and on an island, and suddenly this big sky god flies over and lands on your island, and just starts vomiting out food and supplies. And then when it's done, it closes its mouth and flies away. Wow. And they also noticed that there were some people, the reason they thought the sky gods came is because there were some other people who built altars to these sky gods, towers to them. And they would stand in these towers and they would pray to their sky gods to come and they would guide them in and the sky gods would come and every time they came and landed, they would open their mouths and vomit out supplies and food. And then the war ended and the sky gods left and the people didn't know what to do. And so what they did was they actually made air traffic control towers out of bamboo and stood in them and prayed to the sky gods. And they didn't ever show up because they weren't gods, right? They were airplanes, right? We all know that. And yet for them, it was as real as could be. And we laugh at them. And it's funny because we laugh at them. But then when things start getting a little closer to home, I remember when I, you know, my partner, when I used to work for Lily, is Japanese, and him telling me before about sumo wrestling. Okay, for, at least from my perspective, sumo wrestling is like those guys are big and sweaty and nasty. You know how often a sumo wrestler uh, washes his mawashi? Let's go with zero. Never. Why? 
because he believes that all of his victories live in that thing, and he doesn't want to wash them away. Right? I'm, I remember telling Brad, I'm like, something lives in that thing. Right? <laughs> and, but, you know, it, it, it's, it's one thing for sumo. It's another thing. You know why if in the 90s, at some point in, around, it was in the 90s, late 80s, 90s, basketball shorts started getting bigger and bigger and looser and looser? You know why that happened? This is true. Because, because a basketball player named Michael Jordan, have you ever heard of Michael Jordan? He would not play a, a professional basketball game without wearing his college basketball shorts under his Chicago Bulls basketball shorts. And the Bulls shorts got to be tight on him, and so he went to the tailors, trainers, and said, you need to loosen these up and drop the inseam and make the legs longer so that I can wear every single game that he ever played in professional basketball. And he's arguably the greatest player who ever lived. He wore his UNC shorts under his Bulls shorts. Because if he ever didn't, he might have lost. You see, we can be just as superstitious, and we can sort of assign sort of divine value to, to underwear, right? Or to, to air traffic controllers made out of bamboo. It's not, it's not as far-fetched as you think it is. And so this morning, we're looking at the, the second commandment this morning. The second commandment has to do with, with idols. Like, in other words, if we looked at the first commandment last week, and the first commandment had to do with, with having no other gods and having trusting in the one true God. But this commandment actually has to do with the way we approach him. In other words, number, command number one is about having the right God, and command number two is about relating to the right God in the right way, if that makes sense. So before we, uh, I'm not going to ask a sort of a question. I'm going to give you a little review this morning. I'll probably do a little bit of this as we go through the Ten Commandments. So if you remember the purpose of the Ten Commandments, the purpose of the Ten Commandments is basically to preserve and equip Israel as they went about their mission in the world. And their mission in the world was to bear witness to the character of God and his greatness to all the nations. Okay, so the purpose of the Ten Commandments was not to be a measuring stick for them, primarily. He didn't, and God just didn't say, okay, here's, you know, now that you're going to go on land, here's how you keep your nose clean. Just go obey this stuff and you're going to be good to go. He didn't say that. He gave them the law in order that they might actually have a positive effect on the people around them. And if you remember, we looked at some principles as you try and look to interpret the law. So the first principle you see when you interpret the Ten Commandments you have to take into account is the principle of grace. That grace always precedes law, at least in the Christian Bible. When God delivered Israel out of Egypt, he said, I am the Lord your God who delivered you from the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, God didn't say to Egypt or Israel, you know, if you guys can obey these 10 things, if you can just be squared away, then I will deliver you. What he said was, I have delivered you. That's done. We don't even need to talk about that right now. I have done it. Now, here's how to live out the gospel in, in my face. In other words, have no other gods before me. We talked about the principle of cups, and the principle of cups basically says this, that when you're, when you're reading the Ten Commandments, that you need to apply them not just externally, but internally. Remember, Jesus said to the Pharisees, the, the, the outside of the cup is, is, looks good, you're clean. He said, but the inside of the cup is full of greed, and it's vile. So does the inside of your cup match the outside of your cup? Ten Commandments sort of make us look at that. We have the principle of coins, right? That wherever you look at a commandment and it's negative, the opposite is also implied. So for example, if the command says, do not steal, what's the opposite of don't steal? Well, the opposite of don't steal is be generous. 
And so the, the command sort of cuts both ways when you're studying the Ten Commandments. And finally, the, the principal categories we talked about, the, the, each of the Ten Commandments sort of stands for a whole category. So when Jesus talked about adultery, he said, I tell you the truth, you've heard it said don't commit adultery, but I say if you've ever lusted. So, so each command actually stands for a whole category of sins. And so we, I think we saw last week, when we studied the first command, that there's sort of no way you can move that you escape the Ten Commandments because the very first commandment says, have no other gods but me, that are you going to trust me in all things? Will you trust me? I've shown you favor. Will you live in the context of that favor? And the way you know if you obey the first commandment is just look at how you do it number two through ten. And most of us, at least I don't, have not done too well in the course of my life in 2 through 10, which makes me have to look to Jesus to, to be the one who obeys that for me. So with all of that said, we go to command number two, which is very similar to command number one, but there are some nuances that are important for us. So we're going to look at three things this morning. First thing we're going to look at is the call of the command. In other words, what is the command actually asking us to do or, or demanding from us? We're going to look at the reason for the command that God actually gives a reason in this command, and then finally the image behind the command. Now you need to pay attention this morning. I, told, uh, I had this discovery when I was meeting with our music people this week, Matt and Kim, they could tell you, I was, I, they, I, they came to my office on Tuesday, and I always have my sermon text pinned on my, across my desk standing. I'm like, come here, come here, look at this, look at this, look at this. So what's that, what, what does that say to you? And they're like, it's like 10 commandments, what do you want? Like, <laughs> they had no idea what I was talking about. But, you, but if you notice, if you look at the Ten Commandments, number two, number four, and number ten actually have a lot more text. They have a lot more explanation. And I said, I bet that's because those are harder to obey. So on one hand, we say, oh, you know, we, I, don't, I wouldn't make an idol for myself. You might not say that 20 minutes from now. So anyhow, so the first thing we'll look at is the call of the command. Notice the call says in verse uh, 4, you should not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So the call of the command at its very most basic level is don't make idols for yourself. Engraven image meant like something that you carved with your hand, you know, out of wood. Usually, if you're really wealthy, you might carve it out of wood and then cover it with gold. But it was, it was something you made. And so God says, don't, don't make those things for yourself. He says, don't bow down to them and don't serve them. What is not being said in this command? Maybe that's going to be helpful to know, too. What is not being said in this command is that all images are bad or that art is bad. In fact, what's not being said in this command is that art and images in the context of church are not bad, or art and images in the context of worship are not bad. It's not saying that they're bad. In fact, if you look at the Old Testament, God commands images all over the place. When Solomon was building the temple, you ever read through that? He basically commands him to carve elaborate trees and pomegranates and everything into the walls and around the altar and all these things. Why is he doing that? Well, he, he, because he knows we're, we're human and we, we help, it's helpful for us to see images. And so he wants us to be reminded of where we're heading. In other words, when you look at the temple, all those carvings, there's to remind Israel of Eden. That's where they came from, but all of creation is going back to being perfect the way it ought to be. So images in and of themselves aren't bad. In fact, God refers to himself by way of images throughout the whole Old Testament. Right? We sing songs about a mighty fortress is our God. That, that's an image. 
It's not a carved image, but it's an image nonetheless. Or the Lord is a strong tower, all of these kinds of things. So images in and of themselves are not bad. Images that you make for yourself in order to worship, that's bad. Images that you make for yourself in order to serve, that's bad. You know, images that you bow down to, that, that's bad. Now you might think to yourself, I don't, you know, I, I wouldn't make for myself an image. I don't know, I, you know, I'm, I'm not handy. Well, you know what, you're probably a lot more handy than you think. So for example, is your job an idol that you've made for yourself? Is your job something that, that you've made out for yourself, something that you actually have to bow down to, something that you serve? You see, the problem with making something like your job your idol is you actually might be successful. And you might think the idol has blessed me and given me the affirmation. And, and I love the way Tim Keller says, if you, if, you, if you serve the idol of your job and you're successful, then it goes to your head. And if it goes to your head, that usually pulls you away from God. If you're not successful in your job, the idol that you've made for yourself... Then it goes to your heart, and you're crushed, and you feel like God doesn't care about you. You can make an idol out of anything. You can make an idol out of your family. Is your family an idol? In other words, do you, do you bow down and serve your family with the hope that somehow there's going to be a payoff at the end? And I know we all hope that our kids turn out well, but what I'm saying by that is if we, we put so much stock in the way that our families go. Do we, if, if our kids don't turn out the way they, they, we hoped they would, are we crushed? And if they turn out the way we thought they would or better, are we, sort of, are we too full of ourselves? You see, you can make anything into an idol. And any time you make something into an idol, you end up bowing down. You end up serving that. And God says to us, don't do it. Just don't do those things. Now, it's easier said than done, of course. But he actually gives us a reason for why we should not make idols, bow down to idols, or serve idols. What is the reason that he gives us? He says in verse um, 5, he says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. So he says, You should not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, what is, what is he talking about there when he talks about jealousy? We tend to talk about jealousy in terms of envy, right? So I see, you know, if I go to a Ranger breakfast or something and a guy has a brand new, like, you know, Indian motorcycle, I might envy that thing, right? I don't own it, I don't possess it, but boy, I would love to have it. And I'll think about it for a couple days after even. That's envy. Jealousy is more appropriate in the context of marriage. I mean, ask yourself this, if, if, if you're married or, or have been, you know, you're, you're, you're a husband and your wife is, you know, working somewhere and some other guy starts bringing her flowers. Would that be okay with you? You say, oh, what a nice guy. What a, he's a nice fella. One time you might let that go, but if he continually was, was sort of sweet talking your wife and trying to, trying, to, trying to draw her away from you, that feeling is jealousy. And that's what God is talking about. And why would he talk about being jealous? It's because God is, has put himself into covenant with Israel. In other words, he's married himself to them. I delivered you. I've given everything for you. And I am in covenant with you. So now, when you go to an other gods, that's like sort of sweet talk in someone else. And a God who is not jealous would not be really a God worth having. 
And think about the context that they've found themselves in, that where they would have to obey the Ten Commandments would be in the land of Canaan. And in the land of Canaan, there were basically three big gods that had actual images that they could have gone to. Right? You had Baal, you had Ashtaroth, and you had Marduk. So can you imagine an Israelite in the context of Canaan, and they're in business, or maybe they're a farmer, and it hasn't rained for a long time, and they don't know how to get their crops, and they're praying to God, and nothing's happening, and they say, you know, maybe I'll just stop by the old Temple of Baal this afternoon, and, you know, say a few prayers. What could it hurt? Or maybe, maybe you're a couple in Israel, a young couple. You've been married for a couple of years, and the whole family that you live with keeps looking at you and asking you, so when am I going to have some grandchildren? And it ain't happening. Do you think you might be tempted to go visit the temple of, of Ashtaroth and bow down and say, you know, God's not doing, he's, he's not giving me what I want, so I'm going to go to another. I'm going to seek what out what I need from you. I think it would be tempting. If you were, you were a military commander or you were a general, do you think it might be tempting as you're going out to battle to actually go ahead and stop by the temple of Marduk for a while and just, you know, throw, say a few prayers, what could it hurt? A little extra, it never hurt anybody. And what God is saying, when you do that, when you trust in Baal, when you trust in Ashtaroth to them, and when you trust in Marduk, what that's saying is you're not trusting in me. And you're not relying upon my favor. And, but really, at the end of the day, this command is also for us. Because God is a jealous God because he actually loves us, and he actually cares about us, and he knows that what idols do is ultimately destroy us, and he knows what idols can't do. So what, what, what is wrong with, with having an idol, basically? The first thing is an idol is controllable. In, in other words, if you think about it, when I was a kid, in, when I was in junior high, I remember, you know, I lived near an elementary school, and I remember, like, one, if I wanted to ask a girl to, like, junior high dance, I don't know if any of you other guys did this, maybe it was me, but some, sometimes I used to do it in my office with, a, with, a, with paper, is you go and you say, okay, hoop, if I make this shot, I'm going to call her. You shoot a brick. And I said, well, okay, hoop, here's the deal. If I make this shot, I'm going to call her and she's going to go. And basically you keep going until what? Until you make the shot. Because at the end of the day, the hoop, the God, the hoop God that I was bowing down to, at the end of the day, really it served me. And the hoop God did what I wanted it to do. And, as, and, as, and to the extent it wasn't doing what I wanted to do, it was okay because you know what? Hoop God didn't say anything either. Because a, a, a false god, an idol, cannot talk back to you. You see, most of us, we think, if, if your god never talks back to you, he's probably not God. If your god never challenges your position on anything, it's probably not the, the god of the Bible, at least. So gods are controllable. This command also has to do about worshiping the, the, the real god in a false way. Israel did that. Remember, Moses wasn't even down the mountain yet. And Israel said to Aaron, give us our God who brought us out of Egypt. And he made the golden calf and said, behold, this is your God. And it was a bull. Why? Because bulls are a symbol of strength in the ancient Near East. I, one of my favorite parts, remember Moses comes down, he's really angry, and Aaron's like, I, don't, I just threw a bunch of gold in the fire and it popped out, just like that. It's crazy. And a bunch of people died. But what's the problem with representing the God? Who, they were worshiping the right God, but why, why was worshiping by way of a golden calf bad? Because worshiping that God, they were only worshiping one aspect of him. 
In other words, when, they, when you worship the right God in the wrong way, you tend to emphasize the, the one aspect to, to the exclusion of the others. Like, so for example, in, in marriage, imagine I came home and my wife said to me, Tommy, you know, I, I love you for, for, your, for your swollen biceps and your chiseled abs, <laughs> but I don't really love your, your intellect or your emotions or anything else. The only thing I care about is your body. Well, Okay, so may, that might be true, but, you know. Um, <laughs> I mean, the reality is it would be pretty hollow, wouldn't it? I mean, it would sort of be like, you know, I'm just an object here, what am I, you know? And the same thing happens when we worship God by way, or the, the true God, by way of just things like the golden calf. It doesn't capture all of who he is. How do you make an image of a God who is defined as his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, or infinite, eternal, and unchangeable? To try and boil that down is almost impossible. It is impossible. So that's the other thing. The other part of the problem is the fact that um, the idols can't save you. Maybe that's one of the biggest. Remember, God says, I delivered you from the land of Egypt. Now are you going to trust in me for all things? You see, Israel would have to be saved over and over and over again from, their, from the people around them to be delivered. Are you going to trust in them or are you going to trust in me? At the end of the day, your idol can't save you. Your idol cannot save you. Your idol can't save you if your idol is your job. Your idol can't save you if your, your idol is your family. Your idol can't save you, get this, if your idol is the law. That's how twisted we are. We can actually take the law which God is giving us to keep us from idols and turn that law into an idol. That's what the Pharisees did. The law to them actually became an idol to which they bowed down and served. That's probably why Jesus tells the Pharisees about the Sabbath. He said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The law was not made for you to bow down to and serve. The law is not an idol. The law is not God. You, you shouldn't do that. In fact, when he said the, the law was made for man, or the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, that's another way of saying that the, the, to make the law or anything else an idol is beneath you. Think about that. When you make an idol for yourself, whether it's a, a carved wooden idol or whether it's your job or whether it's your family or whether it's something else, you're actually making something that is literally beneath you because God already has an image. He already has an image. I did this in the first service and it worked pretty well. You, you guys ever watch Penn and Teller? Fool us. Can you fool us? Right, they're, they're illusionists, and, and, and so they do. So here's what I want everyone to do. I'm going I'm to magically produce God's image for you. I want you to shut your eyes for a second. It only works that way. Okay, one, two, three, poof. Now look around you. Everyone in this room, if you're a human being, was created in the image of God. In other words, when you make an image in order to worship, you're actually... Worshiping something that is literally, spiritually speaking, beneath you. That humans are made in the image of God. God made Adam and Eve into his image. And you and I are in God's image. You see, kings used to make their image and place them all around the garden so people would know who owned the place. And what God has done by placing us throughout all of creation is letting creation know who owns the place. This is so important to God. He actually adds a warning and a promise to it. What's the warning he gives here? The warning is pretty dire, frankly. He says, the, uh, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to, the, to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. 
So what is this commandment saying? It sounds pretty grim on the face of it. It says that if you're a kid in a family that struggles with a lot of sin problems and a lot of idolatry, sorry. Fortunately, that's not even what it says in the commandment. But what the commandment does say is that in a family where the leadership of the family, mother and father, are defined by their idols, the whole family suffers for it. So, for example, in my family, my, my stepfather was an alcoholic. That was an idol to him. And the whole family suffered for it. The whole family, the, the, his iniquity was visited upon everybody all the time. Now, how do you get to the, how do you get to the positive side of that? Right? He says, but, you know, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You see, he's saying that the, the iniquities of the fathers are visited to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. In other words, if the kid grows up and also does the same thing, which makes sense if that's what he's learned his whole life or her whole life, then they get the same thing. But is there a way to break the cycle? Apparently, there is. Remember Abraham? Abraham's father, Terah, was an idol maker. He literally was an idol maker by trade. And God called him. He called Abraham out. So it's by way of God's intervention that the cycle breaks. You see, most of our families, we have some, some cycle of sin that has happened. Some cycles that we're looking back and we're always wondering, can I ever break that? Can I ever get past that? Yeah, this is how Jude, my wife and I were like that. When we both became Christians uh, as adults, and she came from a, an upper middle class family that had its own issues with idolatry. I came from a lower middle class family that had its own issues with idolatry. And we were Christians and we met in college. And we used to sit around talking about how God had broken the cycle of generational sin in our lives. It's us right now. And we used to sit around and dream. You know, someday we're just going to be like old geezers and there's just going to be, you know, family for, you know, as far as we can see to the left and right for whom the cycle is also broken. Because you notice what God says there. He says, showing steadfast love to thousands. That's thousands of generations. That's not thousands of people. A thousand generations is functionally an endless amount of time. And we just don't dream about that and talk about that. And I remember when things got hard even in our marriage, I remember those conversations. Am I going to repeat the sin and the sins of my fathers or am I not? And by God's grace, there's intervention there. And, you know, so we got this, a, a letter from my daughter that last week. She's in basic training. And it's a letter that every family hopes for, but, but you can't expect it, right? It's sort of awkward. You know, when are you going to thank me for all the stuff I did for you, you know? <laughs> Judy, none of the kids have ever thanked you for the 21 years of sacrifice yet, have they? And yet we got this letter, and half of it was to, to Judy, and half of it was to me, and then the third part of it was to both of us. And the first half to Judy, of course, thanked her for like homeschooling and her character and her integrity and all these things she'd got from her mother, and it, and it was great. And you know, for me, she thanked me for things that were a, a bit different than those things. <laughs> but what was so incredible to both of us is at the end, she said, but thank you both most for telling me about Jesus. Thank you, thank you most for Jesus. You see, we could, we could have tried to raise her just up as moral. We could have raised her up as immoral, or it doesn't matter. 
But at the end of the day, our conviction was the only thing that can actually break the cycle of hardship and sin in my life, our lives, and all of your lives is the person and work of Jesus. And that actually is where the command takes us. Because you ask yourself, how do we break this? How, how do I get from the, the cycle of visit, iniquity being visited upon me and all my children to love being shown to a thousand generations? And by the way, that word there, steadfast love, it means relentless, enduring love that never ends. How do we get to there? And ironically, the way you get from, from to, to break that power of sin is actually by worshiping an image. Who'd have figured? So the command that tells us don't make for yourselves an image actually ultimately is going to take us to an image to worship. And if you're worshiping that image, it changes everything. What do I mean? Let me read to you Colossians 1 through 5. Remember I told you that we are the image of God, but we as the image of God are completely flawed and broken and marred. It's sort of as if we were statues that someone came by and sort of spray-painted graffiti on and just made completely nasty. Well, that kind of statue can't clean itself, and so God sends someone else, his son, and notice what it says about Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in him everything might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, to reconcile himself all, to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, the, the only hope for you and I to not worship images that we fashion for ourselves is to actually continually be fixing our eyes on the, the image that actually ultimately completely and utterly represents God. That is Jesus himself. I'm going to skip the Hebrews for the sake of time. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament is Jesus' conversation with Philip in John chapter 14. Remember, he's, in John chapter 14, he's telling the disciples, you know, I'm not going to be here all the time, but, but you know, a comforter will come. And they're sort of freaking out. They don't, you know, they're like, you know, we sort of put, put everything in with you. And so we're picking up there where he's having this conversation. Verse 6, Jesus says to them, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, do you... You do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I mean, you get this sense. So Jesus basically says, I get the sense he's disappointed in Philip. He's saying that, you know, that whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Philip's like, show us the Father. And Jesus just sort of, I can imagine him sort of shaking his head. Philip, how long have I been with you? In other words, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. In other words, if you want to know what God the Father is like, if you want to know what the character of God is like, the place you need to look, you actually can look with your eyes, and the, uh, the eyes of your mind at least, is the person and work of Jesus. He perfectly and utterly represents the Father. The Hebrews passage says he is the exact representation of the Father. 
as the Son. Now think about how wild that is, that God the, the, the Father in the person of the Son has actually taken all that he is and somehow incarnated it into an image that we could actually see. Someday we will see. Which, by the way, as a, as a side note, people say, well, that, what about pictures of Jesus? Is that okay? And the answer is yes, I think. Because if Jesus was here right now, you could actually take a picture of him. Because Jesus has a body. Jesus is a man. He is in heaven right now at the right hand of God the Father in a human body, continually and constantly interceding and praying for you and me. And when the devil comes to accuse us, he stands in our stead because he has gone to the cross as one who is a perfect image and has taken on all of our marring, all of our disease, all of our sin, and has given us his perfect image, is imputed to us, his righteousness is given to us. And so when God looks at us, he doesn't see the spray-painted graffiti image. He actually sees the image of Jesus in us. And that, remember, that's what the Romans says, that we've been predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ. And that someday when he returns, we will see him. Do you remember why we'll see him? For we will be like him. And so if, if that's actually the God that we have, remember I asked last week, why would you want anything else? When you, the, the image that we have of Jesus, who is the perfect image of humanity, the perfect image of God, is so enormous, and he is the one who relentlessly pursues you. Remember, have you seen the Avengers? I'm going to close with this. I, I wasn't kidding with the kids. Um, remember the, the first Avengers movie? The villain is Loki. He's sort of this Viking god, and he's, you know, he sort of thinks he's all that. And he and the Incredible Hulk come face to face at some point. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. He comes face to face with the Incredible Hulk, and the Incredible Hulk is like, ugh. And he says, I am a god, foul beast. I don't have time to bother with your ignorance. And remember what Hulk does? He grabs him by the leg, and he goes, boom, 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 boom. And he just beats him to a pulp and leaves him. And Loki looks up and says, what happened? And Hulk looks down and says, puny god. You see, all the gods that you and I make for ourselves in comparison to the one true God who has made himself known in the person and work of Jesus are puny. They're worthless. They can't help you. They can't save you. They can't love you. Jesus offers that to you. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that you would, you would come and you would, you would enliven our hearts with uh, the fact that, that not only does Jesus break into the cycle of sin in our lives and in our families and transforms everything, but he, he promises that, that he will pursue us relentlessly forever. And he has done that in, the person, in, his, in his cross. He's done that in his resurrection. I pray that you'd just give us hope this morning and hope for the hopeless, especially for those who might be here. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen. At this point in the service, if you're able to stand, I ask you to stand.